0: Hi everyone, welcome to the 12th episode of By The Drip. This podcast is about coffee, entrepreneurship, and the people we meet through the amazing story of coffee. I'm your host, David Crosby, founder and CEO of Rosso Coffee Roasters. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Lucia Solis, a former winemaker and current coffee processing specialist. She also hosts the widely informative podcast called Making Coffee. We talk about her history in the wine industry and the series of opportunities that led her into becoming an independent consultant on coffee processing. It's a dense conversation where she shares her knowledge of microbiology, processing coffee and wine. Then we touch on the historical and current challenges of coffee producers. I really enjoyed the conversation with Lucia and I hope you do too. Hi, Lucia. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, David. really appreciate you taking the time. uh, Come sit down and chat with us. So your career started off as a winemaker in Napa Valley, and then you moved into the coffee industry. So I'd love to go back in time and hear how and why you got into the wine industry.
1: You know, it's it's interesting because it's such an obscure career path of winemaker. I think a lot of people don't realize that they can be winemakers. So very few people are as undergrads. So I studied at UC Davis and UC Davis is one of the few schools that has a wine program. Uh, in addition to I think Fresno has one, San Luis Obispo started one. There's one, oh, on the East Coast. Why am I blanking. Well, there's another program on these coasts, but there's very few. There's uh, you know, four or five and then not to mention France. But because I grew up in the Bay Area, UC Davis was really close to me. So I didn't have any like winemaking aspirations. My family was not a winemaking family or wine drinking family. There's nothing in the history of it. I was just going to UC Davis because I was a California kid and it was really close and I loved science. So I went to UC Davis to study chemistry originally chemistry, because I had a great high school chemistry teacher who was Paul Benz, shout out to Paul Benz. He really like started me down this like science path. And once I got into UC Davis, I went into hardcore science in terms of like, I was in an undergrad, I was in a lab as an undergrad doing research and it was such a lonely career. Like it was so isolating. And I thought I'm three years into this chemistry degree and I, I'm already, dreading the rest of my life, like living in a lab by myself. So I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't want that future. Mm. So I was like, okay, so I'm three years into a degree that I hate. What am I going to do? And so <laughs> I, I, mean, I was lucky enough to be at UC Davis and they had a wine program. And so I was like, well, I've taken all of the biology. I've taken the chemistry. I have to, it's actually a pretty heavy science-based degree. So all I needed was like the wine specific, the viticulture classes, So on uh, like my senior year, I changed my major. I was like, this is something I can do. I didn't drink wine. I didn't like it. It was not in my, you know, it was just like something I could do with my degree that I could immediately put into action because Napa Valley is about an hour from the UC Davis campus. So it was almost as practical as like being an accountant where it's like, I'm going to study math and then I'm going to be an accountant. And then my life is figured out. It was just the most obvious path even though most of the people in the wine program they don't realize that they can do that until later so most of the people are master students and people that are coming back for a second bachelor's degree so most of the people in my classes were in their late 30s or 40s or 50s there were some people in their 60s who like had been lawyers had been accountants had been doctors had been other things and were just like burnt out on life and wanted to do something more fun And for me, it was like the most practical thing. So I graduated with a degree in viticulture and enology, and I went straight to work in Napa Valley. My first harvest was in 2007, and I worked at Domaine Chandon, which is a sparkling wine house. And I just fell in love with process. I still didn't really drink wine. Um, I was actually, (laughs) I was not even, (laughs) I was not even 21. Uh, and you can do the wine program if you're not under 21. You just have to wait to save your tasting classes until later. So that's for me, funny. it's always been a- about loving microbiology, loving chemistry, loving just the processing, like being in a winemaking facility. And then wine was kind of like, oh yeah, that's cool too. Like I could almost be making anything. I just like seeing how something goes from point A to point B and all of the like transformation along the way. So that's how I got into wine. So it was like... I didn't find wine as much as like I kind of backed into it with like okay. desperation. <laughs> it okay. was just like, but I, I loved it and I I did really well. So then I went on to work at Opus One and I worked at Cliff Lady Vineyards and those are all in the Napa Valley, in the Napa Valley area. And then after, I want to say like six or seven harvests. So as a wine as part of a, an enologist, so I worked for other people making wine and then I made my own wine. I had a house and I had a, a mini winery at my house. And so I was oh, able wow. to make all the decisions, make the wine myself with a partner, and then I was able to made about a hundred cases, one harvest. And then the second harvest, we did like half as much. Cause we were like, this is a lot of work when you have a full-time job and you're trying to have another <laughs> full-time job. So I've also made wine for myself. And that process was really great too, to really... See the nitty gritty, but how I got into coffee from that, it's like I was very happy being in the wine industry, and like I said, I had just bought, bought my house in Napa, and I was really ready to put down some roots and settle into that type of life. And as the enologist in these other wineries, I bought yeast because it's one of the responsibilities of you know managing the fermentation. So I would decide what yeast strains we would need, or kind of just. Check on the stock or do some research on, like, well, what's what's this year's like hot yeast strain? <laughs> like, what should we be trying? Things like that. So, um, I was very good friends with the company that is the the supplier. So, Lalamond and Scott Laboratories is the Lalamond is the manufacturer, and Scott Labs was the supplier of that yeast. So, I knew them for a long time. I was a customer of theirs for a really long time. And around 2012, 2013, Scott Laboratories was looking to. Break into the coffee and the cacao market because they had been, they've sold yeast for almost 100 years for bakeries, for breweries, for the wine industry, uh, also for like animal usage, like animal feeds, like fermented, broken down um, foods. So, and I think they might also have a little branch in the cosmetic industry as well. But coffee and cacao were completely untapped. So they were looking for somebody to open up those markets. And they also needed somebody to work in the wine industry in Mexico and who spoke Spanish. So because they just knew me, they thought they recruited me to to be kind of a, a yeast ambassador for them, as well as a wine consultant and, and help kind of sell the other products because they don't, don't just do yeast. They also do bacteria and then also corks and all kinds of other enzymes and wine accessories. I said no for like six months. I was like, I'm really happy. Like I don't even drink coffee. I didn't drink coffee until I was almost 30. I was like, this is not even my, i like have, um, I wake up with a lot of natural energy. Like, and uh, also with the wine industry, like you have early days, like as a farmer. So I would be at work at five. So I'd have to wake up at four to be ready to like be at work at five on bottling day. So we have really early Days and then also (laughs) when you're when you're bottling, you have to do a quality control. So we would be tasting the wine at six when like the bottling was ready. So like I like coffee. Like I don't even have time for coffee. Like my morning is already (laughs) going. So it was just not on my radar. I was like, no, I'm good. Like I like my life. I like working at Opus. I I just bought my house. Like I'm not gonna move to Mexico. But Alex Scott was really persistent. And again, he was my friend and, and he just thought it would be a really good opportunity. I talked with my winemaker, my boss at the time, Michael Salachi. And I was like, if Michael thinks this is a good idea, then I'll consider it. But because he's he was, he's also been my mentor for many years. And surprisingly, he was very supportive of it. He's like, you should try it. And I also felt like it was very safe because if I didn't like it, I knew I could come back to wine. I knew that I, I had a home. So that that made it really easy to just take the leap. So then in 2014, I said bye to Napa. I moved down to Mexico, down to Baja. I started working with the wine community down there. And while I was down there, I started to also traveling to different coffee mills with a backpack full of different yeast strains. And we were doing different fermentations, just trying to figure out what would be a good combination of yeast and different coffee varieties, and then just doing it in real life. Because all of their research at that point was lab scale. There were tiny fermentations in a laboratory in France. They didn't have that much full scale, like real life data. And so my job was to just go around and collect this data, see how is the yeast performing? What are the temperatures like? Just collect pH data. How are people using the yeast? How are they rehydrating it? What are their questions? So it was all of this like information gathering for the company. But what I realized was yeast is I mean, first of all, it was just so bizarre to me that people didn't, that coffee producers weren't already doing this because it's such a basic part of a fermentation protocol is to inoculate. And even though coffee, which I think a lot of people didn't know that coffee was fermented. And now a lot of people are starting to, they're like, oh yeah, of course it's fermented. And we've kind of like swung in the other, in the other pendulum. And so I think that we've almost put it out of out of proportion, like before it was completely ignored and nobody really thought about coffee as a fermented food. And now it's like this wonder miracle probiotic, like fermentation thing and it's like it's not quite that either like <laughs> fermentation in yeah, yeah. coffee to put into context for for the listeners a a wine fermentation can be anywhere from 6 days 7 days you can do like a really long cold slow sauvignon blanc fermentation for 3 weeks like you can have a ve- like they can take a long time for all of those sugars to be converted in coffee a typical fermentation can be 12 hours it can be 6 hours if it's a really hot environment So the influence is not quite as dramatic as it is in wine. And so, yes, we can make a lot of comparisons. And a lot of what I try to talk about in my podcast is there's a lot of things that we cannot borrow from the wine industry when we talk about coffee and just trying to give people that context of like, you've heard some of these words, but they're not as relevant as you think. So not only is a coffee fermentation significantly shorter than in other fermented foods like beer as well, or even like a a nice sourdough or yogurt. But in coffee, we're not fermenting the thing itself. We're fermenting the thing outside of the thing, meaning coffee, what we want is the seed. (laughs) We want a coffee seed that we dry and roast. And that's what we grind and brew. And that's what tastes great. But the fermentation doesn't happen inside the seed. The fermentation happens in like the fruity pulp, the mucilage that's on the outside of the seed. Whereas in wine or in any other fermented, well, besides cacao, but with, in wine or in beer or in um, or sourdoughs or in yogurts, we're fermenting the actual product and then we eat that product. Whereas in coffee, we're fermenting the outside, and then we're hoping that some of those flavors get absorbed into the seed. And so, in like in many ways, the fermentation is a like a passive step. Like we're trying to absorb; we're not actively uh, fermenting the seed. So part of this is just to put into context that like fermentation is very important in coffee, but it's also not as important as a lot of people think. It can have a really good influence. And it can also be completely ignored. And so I think that's one of the biggest differences when we're trying to make these wine and coffee comparisons is that in, in wine or beer, if you don't have a fermentation, you will never get wine. The grape juice will never mm-hmm. turn into wine without the fermentation. Coffee without a fermentation, you can still have a coffee. So it's right. not essential or absolutely necessary. But most coffee in the world does undergo some level of fermentation, so it's like trying to find this balance between it's everywhere, all of the time, coffee is fermented, and it's also not as important as you think. So it's like a little bit of both—like it's huge and maybe kind of, you know, something that you can really diminish. That was a really long answer to your question of how no, I got it's, into it's, coffee. It's,
0: it's great. So <laughs> there was a lot to unpack there. Let's go back to it's 2014. You're down in Mexico. When do you start to, you know, entrepreneurship, when do you start to think about starting your own business, doing consulting, what kind of conversations are going on either in your mind or with friends and family to make that transition?
1: I, lo- I love that question because I don't often get to talk about that. So I think in, in the way that I was a reluctant winemaker and a reluctant coffee person, <laughs> and- <laughs> very, very much a reluctant entrepreneur. So yes, I'm I'm an independent coffee consultant and I didn't want to be, I, like I said, I was really happy working in the wine industry and then something kind of pulled me in a different direction and ended up being great. And I really liked what I was doing for, for Sky Laboratories. I really liked the, the research element and, you know, everything was new. Every, every day I was not every day, but very often I was going to a new place that I'd never been to before with people that I'd never met before to do something I'd never done before. So it's like, there was so much newness all of the time until I was, I was traveling a lot, 2014, 15 and 16. I had a brand new passport that expired. I got a new passport. United States passports usually last for 10 years. And you have all those pages at the end to get your, you know, your entrance and exit stamps. And I had a, fresh one. And I ran out of pages in two years. I was traveling so much that I had to then get a third passport.
0: That's impressive.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was exhausting. Um, So that was a little bit of what led to me thinking that I needed to have a a different structure of, of traveling so much. But honestly, what it really was is that this company who sold yeast, who was paying me to get this yeast information and to really convince coffee producers to use yeast, I wanted that. Like I, I would love to convince every coffee producer to use yeast just because it is, it makes their job easier. I think of, I think so many people have this misconception that coffee fermentations and like extended fermentations that we're seeing now, or even my work is about creating innovative flavors and like cutting edge and like really pushing the boundaries of coffee. And for me, I'm not saying that doesn't happen and other people aren't doing that. But for me personally, for coffee producers, I think of yeast as, you know, that advice when surgeons would just cut people open and not wash their hands. And it was like mm-hmm, this yeah. very basic hygiene of like, maybe we should just wash our hands. Like, that's how I think of yeast. Like, let's just wash our hands and then like do all the other stuff too. Like it, it's it's more of an insurance than some cutting edge flavor changing tool, the way that I like to use it and the way that I like to talk about it. So when I was talking to these coffee producers and showing them all of the benefits that using yeast can can have, I noticed that usually wasn't their biggest problem. So I'm here kind of selling them on this idea of like your fermentations. And a lot of people do have fermentation issues. It's a really easy place to get defects. It's a short fermentation. It can be 12 hours, 24. But if it's done poorly, if you have some contamination, if you have mold issues like it can really impact the quality of your coffee. So it's both, it's like a really easy way to dramatically improve your quality very quickly if you're doing things poorly. So I was trying to like position yeast as like this answer to this problem. But the more mills that I visited, the more I realized, well, sure, this helps a lot. But if they just cleaned up their water, if they changed their tanks, so they could do better, if they calibrated their pulper, if we did some different things in drawings so that, you know, inquir- required very little investment. So I started to feel uncomfortable being only able to talk about yeast when I really wanted to talk about the whole process. So even though I didn't have a background in coffee processing per se, I had a background in processing (laughs) in terms of like, I know how we want to get the raw material into this store and we want to get it out there. And then these are the quality control steps that we want to monitor. Towards the end of my time with Scott Laboratories, I felt like I would go to these mills and then like I would show them the yeast and I'm like, but really let's talk about your pulper, but really let's talk about your sorter, you know, like let's float this coffee. And so I didn't feel like it was fair for me to continue to be like, you know, sponsored by Scott Laboratories while I was like, yeast is the least of these producers problems. They have labor issues. You know, there's not enough people showing up to work, things like that. So in 2016, I decided to, I had made enough contacts and people knew me that, that I would go to mills and do this, that I just decided to do it for myself. So from working with Scott Laboratories to being on my own, almost nothing changed because I was still doing the same thing. I would still get in contact with coffee producers, I would go to their mill for a week. I would stay there for a week and I would just watch their process, kind of like an audit and just kind of give them some insight into, Hey, I'm in Costa Rica, but you know, when I was in Africa, I saw this and this is how these people solve this problem. Or what I really see missing is this, or maybe you need a different manager in this position, you know, things like that. And you know, there there was always the fermentation in the yeast. So that was kind of like the thing that opened the door, but it wasn't, it was a thing that let me talk about everything else that I felt was more impactful.
0: Was it difficult at the start to talk to producers about your expertise, you know, through wine and then your few years in coffee? And were producers reaching out to you to get help right away? Or did it take a bit of time to build?
1: So actually, this is something I talk about even less. Um, Thank you for asking. One of the other reasons that I wanted to leave Scott Laboratories, besides feeling like yeast wasn't the most important thing that I could be talking about, was that part of their business model is they sell products. So they sell the yeast, they sell the enzymes, they sell the bacteria, they sell the thing, they sell the corks. And they hire people like me who are you know specialists in a, in a particular area. And then we go and help the implementation of these products. So the money comes in buying the product, not in buying advice. And so for For the producers, in the beginning for the producers at where we were doing the fermentation experiments, I was free for them (laughs) because Scott Laboratories was paying my salary. So I would show up as like a free guide to how to use this product and they would buy the product and then I would come show them how to use it. And so that created this dynamic where if you're not paying for something, then you don't really value it. So here I was feeling like I had all this experience and all these ways to help them, but they weren't paying for it. And so I had a lot of trouble being a young female in this like very male dominated space to get anyone to listen to me, to get anyone to take me seriously. And I remember talking to the company and saying, you need to charge something for my services just so that they'll listen to me. I'm like, just a symbolic like $20, like just something so that there's like a little bit of this energy exchange. And it wasn't their model and they were not ever going to change their model And so I was like, all right, it just sucks to be like dismissed (laughs) constantly to be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're free. So, and I really felt like I could contribute and I could help. So I really needed to get out of that model. That was another like strong influence into how I needed to to go on my own and start charging for my services because it was the only way, again, I didn't need to make the money. I just, I'm like, someone needs to value this and they're not going to value it unless they're paying for it. So unfortunately that's just kind of a a human, like psychological <laughs> thing that we have.
0: No, it it makes perfect sense. So you've talked quite a bit about fermentation, but we have quite a few non coffee professionals that listen. Could you maybe run through for a baseline for them what coffee processing is and and fermentation sitting inside that
1: thing that I was or that some people find surprising when they think about coffee. Like your daily coffee drinker may not know that coffee is a fruit. And uh, coffee comes from a cherry. And that's a very, like, we're very used to calling coffee beans. And so I remember at some point some people in like the paleo movement thinking, oh, I can't have beans. Can I not have coffee? Because coffees are (laughs) beans.
0: (laughs) No. (laughs) That's
1: like the depth of how removed we are from this beverage that most people have every single day. I like to think about, you know, coffee is both ubiquitous, but also very anonymous. And so in processing, it's kind of one of these windows that's opened up in the specialty Uh, coffee industry where we're starting to get people to care about their coffee, to care about what country it comes from and to care about how it actually gets to their cup, all of this questions about because it comes from so far away. It changes hands so many times. So these questions about traceability and ethics and like how how far is this coming from? What is our our carbon footprint for this coffee? So I think that's an important thing to keep in context. So coffee is a fruit. It's usually grown in I'm I live in Colombia. I'm in Colombia right now. So it's grown in the coffee belt, kind of in, in the middle. One of the ways that I like to help people visualize it is Anywhere you can grow really great wine, so the northern and southern hemispheres, don't grow coffee there. And the opposite is true for wine, for coffee. Where you can grow really great coffee, wine, maybe not. The only exception, I would say, is Mexico. Mexico is a long enough country that they have excellent coffee, excellent wine, excellent mezcal. I'm a big, big fan of Mexico. So anyway, so it's grown in these mostly, you know, tropical regions. We have this fruit, but we don't eat the fruit. We don't use the fruit. It's Another really big contrast to wine, where in wine, what we're really interested in is the juice and the skins. That's why we have these extended macerations. We're trying to extract the color and the anthocyanins from the grape skins in grapes to get into our wine. But in coffee, we could really care less about the skin and the juice and the mucilage and the pulp. We really just want the seed. So originally, fermentation, I think, is um, kind of looking back at history in a, a very rosy way. I think fermentation is is not as accurate as saying like, what really was just like a, a rotting or like a spoiling. Like if you just left the fruit alone, it would rot. The fruit would start to decompose. And then eventually you could take out the seed, wash it, and then dry it, roast it, and brew it into your cup of coffee. So you would have these like large piles of coffee cherries that were just decomposing so that we could get the seed out. Now we are like applying the label of fermentation. And that is like a microbial demucilination process where the microbes are breaking down the sugars or breaking down the sticky um, sugars and pectins so we can liberate the seed, but it wasn't done on purpose. So in the coffee industry, unlike the other ones, it was like this very passive, like we just need to like leave the fruit alone so we can get the seed. Now coffee producers are realizing that this is a big source of flavor. So if we we can do the fermentation on purpose, so depending on where in the world. The coffee is grown. There's different practices. So, in let's say Africa, the much more traditional practice is to—it's still a bit of a decomposition. It's the natural style because there's not a lot of water around. So they'll have these cherries drying on beds. And then once you have enough of the fermentation kind of inside of the seed, you can hull the skin and you can liberate the seed that way. And you can use very little water. In countries like Colombia or Guatemala and Latin Central America, where I am there's a lot of water. It rains all the time. It's very much the opposite climate. So the washed process became more became more popular. It's a lot more common in these countries to use that method because we have a lot of water. So what happens is the skin is pulped. The coffee cherries are pulped, meaning the, the skin is removed. You're exposing all of this mucilage so you can have a much faster fermentation. And then a lot of places will use water to wash a little bit of that uh, re- residue off and then go off to drying. So, it's this way of, I like to think about it as like seed liberation. How are we going to get the seed out of this fruit? And fermentation or decomposition or rotting, they're all kind of different levels of activity that a producer can have. You can do nothing and the seed will eventually come out, or you can do the most. You can have a 10 step (laughs) fermentation and also get the seed out. So, that's where you can kind of like modulate how much of an influence fermentation can have in your coffee cup.
0: So coffee producers are reaching out to you. Are they looking to improve cup score usually or are they looking to maybe fix something?
1: Usually it's improve cup score. I would say 60, 40 that reach out to me are wanting to like they they have a really solid 83, 84 point coffee and they're just trying to increase their score. Every now and then there is somebody who reaches out because Well, yeah, I would say 40% of the time, there's people that are reaching out because they've tried experiments. They've tried doing things on their own and the experiments have not gone well. And they've either, you know, reduced the quality of their coffee or they've increased in their defects or they've lost lots and they don't understand what happened. So most of the time it's people wanting to improve, but very often I get people who, you know, read an article somewhere tried a carbonic maceration, tried an anaerobic fermentation, tried a lactic fermentation or where they're trying naturals and they're just getting mold and they're getting, so it's kind of like troubleshooting microbe issues like that as well.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Rosso Coffee Roasters. You can check out the home coffee plant subscription on the website www.rossocoffeeroasters.com. This week's subscription coffee hails from an amazing farm in the West Valley of Costa Rica called Dononos. We've been working with Marvin and Felipe Rodriguez since 2015. It's a honey processed coffee and I just brewed a cup of it and to me this coffee is sweet, refreshing and filled with juicy stone fruit tones. Enjoy sipping on this amazing coffee while listening to my chat with Lucia. What role do you think yeast has in the coffee industry kind of going forward? Like you were saying, it's quite new to our industry while the wine industry has been using it for quite a while.
1: So I think a good distinction too is that like the language that we use. So what is new is the the inoculation and using commercial yeast strains. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that their yeast has been fermenting their coffee since the beginning from these times of of rotting and spoiling. Like yeast has always been there as part of the process as well as other bacteria But now it's like we've taken the blindfold off and we're saying, what is actually doing this fermentation? Or we are inoculating, meaning we're using, you can go to a store, buy a strain of yeast that is known, that has known behavior, meaning that at a certain temperature, it'll behave this way. It'll produce, it's usually going to produce these particular volatiles. Like this particular strain of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, if you do a 36-hour fermentation, will usually give you strawberry notes. Something like that. Like you can have that level of precision. And in coffee, everything's just been kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks and kind of like crossing your fingers and being like, I hope it's good this time. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of producers are, will do the same thing over and over again and get completely different results. They're so like, well, last week when we did this fermentation, it tasted amazing. And we had these citric notes and it was blueberry. And then this week we did exactly the same thing and we get defects. So it's you know helping them understand what is happening in the tank and what what is the microbiology that's involved in getting these flavors. Whereas before it's just been blind. It's just and and the reason why is because there hasn't been an audience who cared. Like nobody cared where their coffee came from or what flavors were in their coffee. It was just like, give me caffeine, put milk in it, put sugar in it, and you know let's move on. So it's like this brand new world that coffee producers are getting to uh, are like finally being invited to. Because the consumer is finally ready to recognize some of these flavors. I think so many consumers don't realize that coffee producers have never been able to do this before. It's not like, it's not like winemakers that have been steadily like perfecting their craft and you get into wine all of a sudden, like you never drank wine and you get into wine and then you start tasting these flavors and you're like, oh, these masters that have been creating these wines for generations or these, you know, family recipes like handed down Coffee producers aren't like that. They don't have a deep history of being able to produce these flavors or knowing what's going on. This is happening now. So it's both like the consumers are creating the demand for these flavors at the same time as the coffee producers are like starting to be able to figure out how they can produce those flavors. And unfortunately, it's kind of like the, what is it, the cart leading the horse where it's like (laughs) the, the consumers, the people who want to drink coffee are demanding you know, these flavors and they want these certain profiles and coffee producers are like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I've never known how to do that, but I'll try to figure it out. And so it's like, it's kind of like backwards, like leading the chain. So that's another part of my fight as well is like trying to get some of the basics down and and realizing that this is a really chaotic world when it comes to coffee producers. It's not like these other industries that have really defined traditions and really defined like cultures of, of fermentation or flavor profiles.
0: What does your day-to-day look like during the harvest?
1: Because it's always harvest somewhere <laughs> because <laughs> I work in a lot of different countries. It's harvest almost anywhere. And then I I've been in Colombia for 1 year. So I moved to Colombia last uh, December at the end of 2020 and Colombia is also unique in that it has a much more spread out harvest compared to other Latin countries. So my job before is I was based in the United States. I was based in Cleveland and I would travel for, I'd do like two or three trips a month to different mills and then I would come home and rest and then I would have a little bit of a break. But then after I came home in the end of 2019 and then we started to have lockdowns because of the pandemic and I couldn't travel and my job was 100% travel. The only way I made money was by traveling and we couldn't travel. So I spent a year, which was a a much needed break in Cleveland. And then once we were able to travel a little bit more at the end of 2020, I realized that the model that I had been using was not going to work anymore. I, I couldn't see a short like oh let's get back to normal type of future for for the world. I was like I need to find something more stable that doesn't depend on traveling. So my husband and I decided to leave Cleveland. We like sold everything. We like just got our backpacks and I found one client here in Colombia where I could stay for 3 months. And then I thought, then I'll figure something else out, but I wanted to do much longer stays. And once I got here to Colombia, I realized this is a really great place in terms of the the infrastructure what's it, I'm. I should have mentioned this earlier. So I'm from Guatemala. I was born in Guatemala, and when I was five years old, my family had to leave, and we immigrated to to California. And so I grew up as a California girl. But all of my, the rest of my aunts and uncles and grandparents and all of my family is still in Guatemala. So I always thought I would end up in Guatemala living and working in, in coffee. But I landed in Colombia, and I really like it here. So it was a three month trip has now been over a year and we're working on another year long visa. So there's nowhere. I'm not looking to leave anytime soon. So what my day-to-day looked like before, which was just a lot of pack my bag, get on a plane, get to a mill, be there for a week, kind of see the, see the process, see how I could help and go home. That really changed in 2020 and 2021, where I am now, I was full-time on this farm and I was just working in the farm here. I wasn't going to see any other clients I had some people that I I could do like virtual help. So sometimes producers who are really far away, we can do like Zoom sessions like this. They On WhatsApp, they can send me their pictures or fermentations and their data. And I always look it over and I can kind of give them some pointers or just kind of like guide them through running their own experiments and understanding like what they're seeing, what they're smelling, what the numbers mean, things like that. So I can do a little bit of of virtual consulting. But for the last year, I've just been, my day-to-day was like, get up, go work on the farm, come home. Get up, work on the farm, come home. Like it was I really like dug into like farmer life.
0: And so what does farmer life look like?
1: It's a good question. Well, it always starts out with feeding like 10 dogs. <laughs> That's an exaggeration. There's <laughs> like five. There's like five dogs that are running around, so it's, you know, early mornings because we're in this house is in the middle of the coffee farm. So you always wake up very early all just because of everybody else here wakes up early. So we'll either have coffee pickers kind of walking around or being here, or the dogs or the chickens, or the, everybody gets up. So then it's feeding the dogs and kind of just having breakfast, getting ready to go down to the mill. So or kind of at the farm area where I'm staying is at the top of a mountain. And then it was like a 20, 20 minute walk down to the mill where I would spend most of the day just doing. Monitoring fermentations, seeing how the coffee was coming in, doing quality control. So, cupping everything that was drying, monitoring drying, cupping everything that was drying, and then just kind of monitoring it as it was aging. Cause that was another thing that really was different during the pandemic was coffee couldn't leave as quickly. It wasn't, mm-hmm. we could dry it, dry it, put it on a truck and send it out. Especially in Colombia, there was a lot of delays in the ports. So coffee that would normally just move out had to stick around in warehouses for much, much longer. So six months, eight months, nine months. So, so that's another thing that I, I really have been trying to focus on is coffee shelf life and longevity, being able to not have coffee fade so, so fast. So it was mostly things like that, just working in the mill, pulping coffee, doing quality control. There's there's not a lot to do up here on the mountain. There's not a lot of internet either. So <laughs> trying to grow some food, knitting.
0: What are some of the struggles that coffee producers go through that maybe consumers or baristas might not be aware of, especially when you're, you're on the, the front lines and visiting so many different places?
1: So one of the, I think, biggest challenges that coffee producers face is the price instability. So when you are making a product, your cost of production doesn't change, but what the market is willing to pay for that product is constantly fluctuating. So this creates a lot of uncertainty and instability for coffee producers. And even though we like to talk about the specialty coffee industry where we're paying, you know, double or triple the, the C price, then it's a lot of times still not enough. And very little coffee in the world is actually sold as specialty. So the reality of most coffee producers in most of the world is that they're selling at commodity prices. And that is set by, you know, market forces outside of their control. So this creates a lot of stress and challenges for coffee producers because however much money they have to invest in their farm is very variable. It's hard to make long-term plans in terms of investing back in the farm or investing in, your workers or anything like that. So it creates a really inst- unstable workforce and a really unstable um, like supply of just resources. Like you don't know how much you're going to have. Sometimes a coffee price is good like right now, uh, the last couple of uh, what, what are we were in January? The last couple of months, coffee prices have been incredible <laughs> because mm-hmm. there yep. it's been there's been a shortage of coffee and that the market has rewarded that with higher prices and so right now yes the price is very good but very few at least here in Colombia very few coffee producers can take advantage of those really high prices because there has been a coffee shortage that the weather has been awful in terms of yield so a lot of coffee producers are down you know 50 percent of what their normal yields are as well as we can't get the coffee out it, you if you can have a buyer but if the ports if the the boats aren't leaving, it doesn't matter. You can't get paid. So it's, you know, there's very superficial, like, yay, coffee prices are high, but who can actually take advantage of that is what I've seen very few people. I think another thing to consider is that uh, most of the coffee is grown in very rural places, very high mountains. They're, they're, it's very difficult terrain. So a lot of times just transportation, just getting the cherries to the mill can be a challenge or getting the coffee out of the mill into the dry mill or to a port like that. Those transportation challenges can be pretty significant. Lots of delays and the, the roads are terrible. Like the infrastructure in a lot of these countries is is very poor. So just thinking about like those logistics, I think are the, the biggest challenges. Yeah. Off the top of my head.
0: Sea market. It's, you know, set, I think it's a seven or eight year high. Do you hate the sea market? Like, Like, do you love it? <laughs> what's what's the thoughts on should we not even associate it buying specialty coffee with it?
1: yeah, I, I think that you know it's not a thing to love or hate. it's it's a thing that is. It is here. It is the way that coffee business is done. I do think that the specialty industry has has been a little bit too comfortable by just saying, Oh, we pay double or triple what the C price is when the real problem isn't that it's that we're not paying the cost of production. And that really is different in so many different countries. And that's crazy that there's like this one price for coffee and how much it costs to produce coffee in Costa Rica or Colombia or Kenya. Like those are completely different. Those are completely different values. And yet there is just this one coffee price. So I think that partially it's because it's such a difficult thing to understand the cost of production because a lot of the times these really small coffee producers coffee farmers they're not keeping track of their cost of production because they've never had to keep track of their cost of production because that's never been rewarded it's it's just like you you make coffee if it's good you try to grow some more you try to get your yields up and you know it can be kind of baffling for us to be like well you have a business and you don't know your cost of production Like we can be very judgmental about it, but when you think about culturally, historically, these you know these are farmers, and they why would they know that? (laughs) Why would they? No one's ever asked them that. They don't have the you know these Excel sheets and how to keep track of these things. So in a way, it's kind of like this twofold problem where buyers don't really know. They can't pay the cost of production because coffee producers aren't telling them what their cost of production is necessarily. Like that that conversation needs to happen. So I think a lot more of the buyers have been taking it upon themselves to try and calculate and to help kind of figure out what is the cost of production and what is an ethical price to pay for coffee. But I think ethics has been really left out of the conversation for too long. We're sort of just patting ourselves on our back and saying like, oh, we're paying more for coffee without really checking, well, is that more even making a difference? And is that more getting to the people that it needs to get to? So I I think those are some of the things that we're finally starting to, as an industry address, but pretty slowly. And and I don't know, I don't feel that optimistic that we're going to like be able to catch up with all the challenges. I mean, when you're asking me about the challenges for coffee producers, climate change is a huge challenge in terms of what it's doing to the crop. And this is this is a huge problem that we're not gonna be able to fix with, with price alone. Like we need, you know, government help. We need a very different methodology for solving these these crises.
0: If you could sit down, gather all the green coffee buyers in the world, sit them down in, in a room and say something to all of them with all these things you just said in mind, what do you think you would say?
1: Oh my gosh, that's so much pressure. I mean, I think part of my personality is I've never wanted to be that person. Like I really like, which is why I like production. Like I like working in the background, even the, the, the podcast that I have, the Making Coffee podcast, it's really for coffee producers. It's really for, you know, insiders, because I don't think I'm the right person to talk to large groups that way. I Come I think on. I'm too, I think I'm too emotional. <laughs> like I would just want to scream at them. Like I don't, I wouldn't be productive at all. I don't know. I guess the question that I'm personally struggling with lately, being in this industry and and promoting it, you know, promoting coffee producers is coffee still worth growing. Like all of that we're learning in terms of its colonial history, in terms of how, how unethical, the lack of, traceability how just deeply entrenched these unequal economic systems are I was like all for a cup of coffee like we're these people have been slaves we're, we're murdering the earth like for a cup of coffee like is it worth it like is your cup of coffee that important that you need to destroy the earth and destroy people's lives for it I get for some people yes it is or they don't know and so I'm just not convinced that this product needs to exist. Like in terms of looking at at climate change and seeing that there's very few places or places where coffee can grow are disappearing and there's going to be less coffee. And the thing about coffee is that it's very adaptable. So where it's growing now, you know, it's going to move, but those coffee producers are like, they can't just pick up their land. (laughs) So like, this is where they are. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm feeling very conflicted about promoting an industry that is very damaging for all of the things that we want to like say that we're helping the farmer. I just, I just don't see it when I, when I'm on the ground, I don't see it. It's, it's a, it's a game of volume. It's a game of, you know, very like the only producers that I see being successful are ones that are generationally wealthy, that have either other means, that have other businesses that are doing other things. It's very difficult to make a living solely from coffee, like as a newer producer. So don't put me in front of a group (laughs) of people. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) You guys, don't listen to Lucia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Coffee processing, you know, we got so many versions. Is there one that you wish would just like disappear?
1: Well... The one that I am the most vocally against is carbonic maceration. I, I don't necessarily have anything uh, against the flavor that results from it. It's it's a fine tasting coffee. It's that it's a very difficult to produce coffee. It's, it's a very like high input process from coffee producers who are already like stretched their limit. So it's like we're, we've been making them jump through all these hoops and we're like, oh, here's 10 more hoops to jump through and then we'll pay you good money for your coffee, you know? And so anyway, the, the reason I don't like that one also from a like logistical point of view but also from a philosophical point of view so carbonic maceration in winemaking if you guys know like the beaujolais and those like really fruity really delicate wines from france those are the entire cluster of grapes is put into a tank, so intact. So usually in coffee, you, uh, sorry, in wine, you want to crush the grapes so that you can liberate the juice so they can extract the color on the skins. Like So crushing is one of the first steps of winemaking. And this method of carbonic maceration skips the crushing step and you just have the whole cluster into the tank. And part of the reason for doing that is because when you're crushing the grapes, and you're getting the juice out and you're extracting all those beautiful flavors from the skins, what also happens is that a lot of times you're crushing the seeds because you're just crushing the whole fruit. So the seeds get crushed and the seeds are a source of tannins, but they can also be a source of like kind of drying characteristics in wine. So winemakings were we're looking for a way to maximize the fruity flavor and basically eliminate the influence of the seed saying like, how can we get some of all the benefits of the fruity flavors and make the seed disappear. And they came up with carbonic maceration because it's not crushed, the seed remains intact and it has a very little influence and you get this beautiful, fruity, effervescent, delicate wine. So a method that was meant to eliminate the influence of the seed that is being used in coffee where all we care about is the seed. The seed is the most important part. It's like we're using this method that's supposed to erase the seed to make our coffee better. So like I just have a problem with that philosophically. I don't I don't think that's the best method to get these flavors. And I think that's because most people don't understand the history of it. It just looks really cool to like put into a tank these like bright red cherries. That method I wish would go away. But the point is also that coffee producers have so many more tools now to modulate the flavor so that it can open up a lot of markets. So I don't want to be negative about a particular tool that producers have i've just seen that most of the way that it plays out is this tool is kind of used against them because it's the consumer or the buyer that's asking for the tool or that's asking for this type of coffee and the producer doesn't know how to do that and then they have to like learn and then they make mistakes and then they call me to try and fix it and so (laughs) mostly like i see those (laughs) I, i i see that way played out you know it's very rare that a coffee producer is genuinely interested in experimenting, comes up with something from the bottom of their heart and says, I wanna make coffee this way and I wanna offer it to you. Mostly it's other people saying, I'll buy your coffee if it tastes like this. And then they have to figure out, okay, how do I make it taste like that?
0: Right.
1: So that power dynamic makes me really uncomfortable. And it's just very, very unique to coffee.
0: Is there a way we can address that power dynamic? Is, is it science and knowledge that helps producers swing that power dynamic back? you know we hear lots of stories of asking for certain flavors how do we kind of solve maybe not solves the wrong word but address this issue
1: i that's a great question that i've i've been thinking about a lot i mean i can't talk like this and not think about that or not have some kind of answer one of the things that i think is maybe not the answer or or something that we talk about a lot is that this problem can be solved by consumers That consumers need to pay more for coffee. That consumers need to value coffee more. That they need to care about where their coffee is coming from. And I just don't think it's a very satisfying answer. I don't think I don't think it should be on consumers to save coffee and to save the coffee producers because then we're still falling into that power dynamic of like charity or of like saviorship. I I think that the solutions need to be a lot bigger in terms of government help in each of these countries to support coffee producers or coffee producers just banding together themselves and sort of saying, I'm not going to sell my coffee for less than X or, or for them to take, take it upon themselves to learn their cost of production. And then to ask for more than that. I think it really needs to come from the producing side. Producers need to figure out a way to take some of that power back themselves instead of waiting for consumers to give them some of that power. Like that, that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting is like, it's, it's up to consumers or the buying side of the, of the coffee industry to, to give up more power instead of producers just claiming more of it themselves.
0: So I want to be mindful of your time. I've got a few personal questions here. What's, what's the future for yourself in the next you know year to five years?
1: What I'm really hoping to do, what I've I've been, and I'm saying this as much as I can to just put it out in the universe and hopefully it will happen Um, I can manifest this life. So I was really, like I mentioned earlier, tired of of traveling. And I also felt like it was a really inefficient use of my my time to go to like one mill at a time, one data point, one producer. And so what I want to do and what I came to Columbia for was to find a location where I could have like a pilot mill, like a small teaching mill, and I could invite producers here and we could have like summer camps where we can not just learn from me in terms of like basic processing but learn from each other there's so much that producers can learn from each other and that's something that is very common in the wine industry that i don't see happening so much in coffee it was really common when i worked in the wine industry to take field trips to other wineries and we would take the whole winemaking team to a competitor i say that you know in quotes a competitor winery and just look around and say what tanks do you use how do you guys do this how do you solve this problem like What do you think of that new pump? What do you think of that new, you know, and just being able to learn from each other. So I wanted to create like a a summer camp for coffee producers to come and learn how to do processing together. I still haven't quite found the location, but that's what I'm working on, like having a home base here so that I can kind of leverage more of that information. So I'm going to do a lot less one-on-one consulting. I have a few commitments that I'm I'm going to follow through, but I'm not really taking any new clients to visit because I really want to work on this summer camp.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. What does rest look like for you?
1: Rest looks like I have many hammocks in my house. I have, I have a hammock chair. I have a yoga hammock. I have another like regular hammock. Um, rest looks like hammocking and nice. maybe reading, maybe like napping, hanging out with my dogs. I'm a big fan of rest. I'm not like a go, go, go work. <laughs> like, not at all.
0: How much coffee do you drink a day?
1: I just recently tried to do this calculation of like how many kilos and I totally forgot the number, but I do drink coffee every day and I have been trying to, as a female and having caffeine kind of affect my hormones, I've been given the advice by doctors to like kind of reduce the caffeine, which is actually another thing that I want in my future is to do a caffeine project. I'm looking for somebody to partner with to do a decaffeinated, like a very extended fermentation yeast process. And then that gets turned into a decaf coffee so that we have something that has no caffeine, low caffeine, and a lot of flavor. Because I think that's a lot of the the challenges is when the decaffeination process is very violent. It's like very intense to get the caffeine out of the seed. So by the time you're done doing that, a lot of the flavor also leaves. So I want to design a coffee that starts out like something like a really funky coffee, something really intense that has a lot of flavor so that it can withstand. And by the time it goes through the decaffeination process, it's still got a lot of flavor. So like something that by itself may not be very pleasant, but after it goes through the process can be be decent. So that's another thing I'm putting out there. I do want to do that project. So even though I drink coffee every day, I try to do like a little six ounce cup. I'm trying to like take mini breaks to just recalibrate myself.
0: Nice. nice. Where can people find your coffee that you've helped process? Where can they find that online?
1: The latest, uh, we just sent 40 bags over to Russia. So Camera Obscura in Russia, and I know they also are going to be sending it to the Ukraine. That is like the most recent batch that I've been working on all year. And the next coffee that I'm going to work on, I don't know. That That hasn't been produced yet. So when I do have coffees that I can announce, I... We'll like post them on Instagram, but that's really the the only place for this year. Uh, another place that people can look to where I used to work at in, nice no, to work at, where I used to live at in Cleveland is Phoenix Coffee. Uh, some coffee, not necessarily that I've worked on recently, but a lot of producers that I've worked with in the past and that I like to support is at Phoenix Coffee in Cleveland, Ohio. And I know they also ship um, around the country. So it's a place to find it.
0: So final handoff, where can people find you online? And uh, reach out to you?
1: Very few places. I don't really like to be found online. I, I have a website where I have some of my resources. So I do have virt- videos that I have recorded for producers or roasters that may want to understand where their flavors could be coming from. So I have several videos about coffee production and different kind of fermentation techniques, but they're they're very much technical that I hope coffee producers will watch and then do something differently in their mill. So those videos are on there. I have the podcast that I do pretty infrequently. It's called Making Coffee with Lucia Solis. And I'm very inactive on Instagram. I just like to, you know, post what I'm doing, but I don't interact there. The only place that I interact with people is on the Patreon that supports the supports the podcast. And as part of the Patreon membership, I do like live office hours. So Couple times a month, I'll get on with people when we can. Mostly producers, we can troubleshoot some things that are going on in their fermentations or their processing, or people that are kind of just starting out, or somebody who's maybe heard a podcast, an episode, and they're like, "What did you mean by this lactic process?" and uh, things like that. So that, those are Patreons, really the the where I put most of my energy.
0: Well, thanks so much for taking the time. You're doing amazing work. Everything you send out into the world, people are learning from and really appreciate you talking with us today.
1: That's really sweet. And I really appreciate this opportunity to kind of talk about, like I said, things that I don't normally talk about on my podcast or or anywhere else. So thank you for your very thoughtful questions.
0: Wow, you made it. Thanks for listening to Buy The Drip. If you enjoyed the conversation today or found value in it, if you could please share the podcast with friends and family, that'd be so helpful for us to grow the podcast. As always, please subscribe, rate, and give us a comment. That would mean so much to me. Till next time.